take out your Bibles and open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 14 and then I'll read through chapter 4 verse 5 and I'm not going to break and tell you where the chapter is because you know where it is. And once you find it, you can stand with me in honor of God's word. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would continue to, to give your help, your helping spirit to us. We thank you for what you've already taught us today. We pray that you would continue to teach. Lord, help us to think right thoughts. Help us to understand your word. Help us to cherish your church. Lord, as we worship as we read in the book of Exodus of your detailed prescriptions, we understand that this time is not common time, that when your people gather, this is consecrated time. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us to determine within ourselves that this would be a special time of listening, of receiving your word with meekness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Our overarching theme, remember, is the duty of the saints to pray for those who minister the Word. We saw two weeks ago the apostolic directive that the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to request prayer from almost every audience to which he wrote... And if the Apostle Paul needed prayer, then surely those of us in our generation who are ministering the Word need the prayers 
of those who hear. And if Paul could expect his audiences to pray for him and his ministry, then surely we ought to be expected, all of us, to be in regular prayer for those who are ministering the Word. Now this morning we begin to look at the first line of argumentation that I'm trying to use to press this duty upon your conscience, which was the importance of the preaching of the Word of God in the life of a Christian. And I made a, a fairly bold claim that really goes against a lot of what we hear in our culture and, and a lot of the ways that we are taught and conditioned and that was this, the public preaching and teaching of God's Word is and always has been the primary means ordained by God by which His Word would go forth. A lot of people don't believe that. They don't agree with that. They, they assume that their, their private study is preeminent and that they might make it to preaching. And if they do make it to preaching, if they do make it to a, a public worship service, well, that's fine and good, but even if they don't, They'll, they'll fare just fine. I want to briefly recap what we saw this morning. We started broadly by consideration of the Word of God in general. We saw that the Word of God has a direct connection to the nature of God, that it is in the very nature of God to reveal Himself by His Word. And that's the root and ground of everything that we do as the people of God. We saw the power and the place of God's Word in creation, that God created by His Word. In that creation, He reveals Himself, and then He comes even more intimately and reveals Himself to His creatures, walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden. So that in the very first actions of God, think about this, moving from the eternal decree, which is in God Himself from eternity, moving from the eternal decree into the very first acts of creation and providence, God is simply doing that which is in accord with His own nature. He's revealing Himself through His Word. He's doing what the living God does. Then following the fall of man into sin, we see then the need and the appearance in the, in the timeline of redemptive history of the living preacher. Because of the fall of sin, man has changed. God hasn't changed, but man has changed. So God can no longer carry on communion with men, but He's still the very same self-revealing God. He wants to reveal Himself to His creatures. And so He does this by using the living preacher. We looked at Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all men who were charged with teaching the words of God to those around them. In the nation of Israel, Moses was a preacher and a prophet. Moses commanded the fathers to teach their families. God instituted the offices of the prophets and the priests, all of these living preachers, men who would take the word of God and get it to other men. After the exile in Babylon, we see Ezra. In the intertestamental period, we see the synagogue system develop and the pattern continues. Men delivering the Word of God to other men. I think it's interesting in the passage that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that men will not endure sound teaching, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers. It is, it is of our nature in the image of God to communicate verbally and to seek out for ourselves somebody who will lead us a little further to teach us something. Even if they won't endure sound teaching, fallen men are going to accumulate teachers. The question is, are they going to take the teachers that God gives or are they going to seek out for themselves teachers? This is what we do. 
Then we saw the role of the preached Word in the Gospel age. As we come into the New Testament, we see the Word made flesh. Christ, the Son of God, incarnate, comes into the world. The final and complete living revelation of God to living men. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And we could lay that right beside God speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's Christ fulfilling that promise. So Christ comes into the world as the the living revelation of God to men. Christ Himself was a preacher and He preached because He was revealing the God who is the self-revealing God, the, the speaking God. So then in all of that we saw that the act of preaching is not a Reformation era invention. It's not something that John Knox came up with and everybody said, hey, that, that seemed to work pretty good. Let's just do that. That's not what happened. It's not simply a, a fad, a passing fad amongst um, conservative evangelicals or reformed evangelicals. It's not secondary. It's not merely supplemental as a means of grace. It is the primary means by which God brings His Word to His people. It is the most effective way. So all of that by way of recap... We're going to move forward, still under that third main heading. We're looking at the role of the preached Word in the Gospel age. We see Christ, the Word made flesh. We see Christ, the preacher. And now we'll pick up with Christ, the sender. Not only was our Lord a preacher Himself, but He was very intentional about preparing and sending other men. Other preachers. He didn't see his ministry as finding its chronological end in himself. Yes, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. But chronologically, that's not where it stopped. He said in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, so I have sent or am sending you. He didn't tell them, his disciples, guys, hey listen, the preacher's on the scene, you guys relax, I'll handle this. He didn't. He actually said in Matthew 9, 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is something we are to devote our souls to, praying for the ministry of the Word to continue. So we see this in His ministry as He Himself sends. He personally sends preachers. Sends His disciples out in Luke 9, 1 and 2. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So notice He gave them power for miracles, but He sent them for the purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of God and to heal. And we know that the miracles that accompanied the preaching were simply a validation of the preaching, the preached word. So He sent them. At the close of His ministry, He's preparing His disciples for the time when He's about to be gone and their continued ministry and the bulk of what we call the upper room discourse is geared around the Lord comforting His disciples and preparing them for the ongoing mission. It wasn't just, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, but don't worry, everything's going to be fine while you guys are preaching. He says in John 14, 26... 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus has said it to them, and they're thinking, how in the world are we going to remember all of this? And He says, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and help you remember all that I have said to you. And then He says, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He, he's preparing them to continue His preaching ministry. In John 15, 20, He says, If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's promising them persecution based on their faithfulness to the word that they preach. He preached it, they're going to kill him, and you're going to preach it. And if you're faithful, they're going to kill you. The people that heard my word, they'll hear your word. But those who don't like my word, they're not going to like your word. John 17, in the high priestly prayer, verse 14, Jesus prays to his Father, I have given them... Your word. He confirms with the Father that this essential part of His ministry, the, the bequeathing to them the Word of God, is successfully completed. I did it. You gave me the work, Father. I did it. And He prays there what He actually said in John 20. John 17 and verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In other words, Father... The baton of gospel ministry has been successfully passed. I trained them. I'm ha I've handed it off. So the Lord Jesus, the quintessential preacher, was not only where, well aware of His own role as a preacher, but throughout His ministry, He's making it clear to His disciples that when He's gone, they are going to continue that preaching ministry. They will continue the public proclamation. So He, in His ministry sent them. Nowhere is this more explicit than in those passages that we call the Great Commission. We saw this in Matthew 28, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Remember, we laid that right beside his words in Luke 24. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, assumed in making disciples is what he says in Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What's interesting is in that text he's explaining to them what had been written in the Law of Moses and the Psalms and the Prophets. So this wasn't a new concept. This is what we saw this morning. It has been written in the Law of Moses and the Psalms and the Prophets that the Gospel will be preached to the nations. That was always the plan. Gospel preaching would be the primary means of disseminating the Word of God. So as we, we look at the gospel age, we see the Word made flesh, we see Christ the preacher, we see Christ the sender, and now we can look at what I've called the post-ascension church. We begin to look at the New Testament church after Christ is gone, and we can ask, did the apostles see the public preaching and teaching of the Word as supplemental or secondary to the mission? What impression did the Lord's ministry and His commission have on them? Did, after the ascension, did they get together and say, all right, guys, 
we know that Jesus said that stuff about teaching, but are we really going to follow through with it? Well, we can see the answer in how they responded to the very first outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit's poured out, and they just start talking. Peter, clothed with power from on high, filled with the Spirit, preached, it says, in Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. He stands and he starts preaching. He didn't, he didn't walk into the synagogue and sit down and just hope somebody would gather around him. He began to preach. He lifted his voice and addressed his audience. And the Spirit blessed his preaching with 3,000 souls. That early New Testament church, we know, devoted themselves to several staple activities. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. First in line, at the top, the apostles' teaching. At Acts 5.42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This was their ongoing habitual practice. You couldn't find them not preaching. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they were just, as some have said, they were gossiping. That's all they could talk about was the Christ is Jesus. The Christ is Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, during a time of distraction with regard to the widows and their needs going unmet. It says that the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles of Christ, just like the Lord before them, saw the ministry of the Word as of utmost concern in the church. Find somebody else. Tend to the widows. Don't neglect them. Tend to them. But that's not our job. We're giving ourselves to this one thing. Paul's model in throughout the book of Acts, Paul and Peter, we don't have time to look at all of it, but if you trace, just read the book of Acts and you see all they're doing is preaching, evangelizing, reasoning from the scriptures, and over and over we see the church is increasing, the church is constantly growing, and the word of God is going forth. You see that phrase in the book of Acts, the word of God increased. All that took place and nobody had a copy of the Scriptures like we have. Again, I'm not trying to... There are some who would take all of that material and say, therefore we don't need it. I'm not saying that. I don't think anybody with any honesty could listen to anything that we've ever taught or I've ever taught and come to that conclusion. But we need to reckon with this reality that they had men appointed by Christ, taught by Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ, preaching the Word. And God continued to speak to His people and reveal Himself by means of a living preacher just like He had always done. He just continuing His pattern. So we see that in what we might call the gospel dispensation, beginning with the ministry of Christ, there was an intensified focus of 
public proclamation. It didn't, it didn't lessen. It wasn't, well, now that Christ is here, we don't have to worry so much about public teaching. No, it intensifies. Why is that? Because of who God is and who man is, as we saw this morning. Preaching is a means designed by our Creator out of mercy and tenderness for His creatures. Now, I've included some quotations in tonight's message, just so that you know that I'm not crazy. I want to read you a quote from... I've got a couple men that, I've, that have addressed this issue and, and done a good job. This is from Robert Hall. He says, and I quote, here he's speaking of God when he says he, this is God. He who knows how forcible are right words and how apt man is to be moved by man has consulted the constitution of our frame by appointing an order of men whose office it is to address their fellow creatures on their eternal concerns. Strong feeling is naturally contagious. We know that, right? And if... He says, if as the wise man observes, as iron sharpeneth iron, so doth the countenance of a man his friend, the combined effect of countenance, gesture, and voice, accompanying the powerful appeal to the understanding and the heart on subjects of everlasting moment, can scarcely fail of being great. What he's saying is you have a living, breathing, physical preacher who's in your presence, Raising his voice and lowering his voice and using his facial expression and appealing to the conscience and the heart. He says, you, you bring a man to other men dealing with eternal matters on which they all share. We all have this in common. Pleading with other men. He says, that can't fail to be great. It's, it's calculated precisely to meet us where we are. God knows himself. God knows us. And God has given to us the preached Word. Now, get a little bit closer to the point. What I'm trying to show you is that you ought to pray for the ministry of the Word and for those who minister the Word. In order to be convinced of your personal responsibility, you have to not only see that preaching is a means of grace ordained by God and instituted by God in an overarching sense, you have to also recognize the specific role that preaching plays at the present time in the local church of which you are a part. We're not just watching these scenes unfold as if they have nothing to do with us. We are in this great line. So that brings us to the fourth and final heading, the role of the preached word in the church. The role of the preached word in the church. It's not enough that Moses was a great preacher, or that Ezra did a really good job interpreting the Scriptures to those people. It's not enough that we, we really commend Paul for his labors and, and missionary endeavors and preaching. That's not enough. You see, you and I are also members of a New Testament church. And we live in a time and a place where everybody has their own copy of the Bible, you and I can go home this week and listen to more preachers than there were on the planet in Acts chapter 6. We can get online and Google any scriptural subject question we want anytime, day or night, from the palm of our hand. So we might ask, 
have we come, have we finally arrived at a day and an age in which the ancient methodology of public preaching by a live human agent is no longer a viable means of advancing the gospel? Or is it at least lower on the totem pole of importance with regard to the means of grace? Well, we go back to where we started. If it's rooted in the nature of an immutable God who has condescended to men who have yet to make any advances in their natural condition, they're still incapable of improving their condition, no matter how technologically advanced. We're not getting closer to God. We have to conclude the answer is no. We're not any better off. Public preaching remains the preeminent means of propagating the Word of God because it's rooted in the nature of God and the nature of fallen men. Timothy Dwight says, and I quote, From the infancy of the church to the present hour, preaching has more aroused and engaged the attention of mankind than everything else which was not miraculous. Far more knowledge and far deeper impressions of religious subjects have been gained by mankind from this source than from all other human labors whatever. I thought this last statement was funny. Nor was there any other method ever devised in the present world so cheap, so convenient, and so effectual for the purpose of diffusing instruction or reformation. It continues. And so that's what I want to show you. The importance of the preached word in the church itself, both in its institutional structure and for the individual saints. You have to believe that preaching is important in this room for these people. And once you believe that, you're going to start praying for the ministry of the Word, I believe. So first, it's institutional structure. Built into the structure of the New Testament church, in every generation, there is a specific, divinely appointed role to play. The church has a job. If we ask, what, what, what's the deal? Why is there still a church on the earth? Well, we could name a lot of different things, but all of them come down to one point in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, referring to the church, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You say, well, we're supposed to make disciples, right, by holding up the truth. We're supposed to worship God, yes, in spirit and in truth. Paul writing to Timothy in this pastoral epistle. He's giving his, his job description. He's explaining to him how the church is to function. And he says it's the duty of the church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's what she is. This is what she does. A pillar holds up the truth. A buttress firmly supports the upholding of the truth so that the truth remains forever upheld. And so the church is the vehicle in which the faith once for all delivered to the saints is transported from generation to generation through the means of Christ's church. A group of people who do not serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth is not a church. It does not matter her cause. It doesn't matter her numbers. It doesn't matter how busy she is. It doesn't matter her reputation in the community. If she fumbles the truth, she ceases to be a church. We can go back to the apostles with the widows. It doesn't matter how many widows you feed. If you fumble the truth, we're not a church. Find somebody to tend to the widows. Yes, 
take up the cause of the, the, the voiceless, the orphan and the widow, but not at the cost of the truth. Why? Because the church has a job, pillar and buttress of the truth. So how does the church do this? By continually preaching the truth and by raising up and training up men to preach. So when we read of the qualifications of the overseers of the church, all of them deal with the character of the man, except one. All of them, character, 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 except one. One ability, 1 Timothy 3.2, he must be able to teach. Titus 1.9, able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because this is our job. Uphold the truth. So we're not surprised when we get to the job description of the elders in the pastorals, specifically 1 and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy, I'm hoping to come. Until I come, read the text, explain the text, apply the text. And then when you get together again, read the text, explain the text, apply the text. Give yourself to this. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You've got to guard it, Timothy. Watch the teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Just keep it going, Timothy. I gave it to you, and you give it to men who can give it to other men. Just as the human heart is a... a perpetual factory of idols, Calvin said. So also the church ought to be a perpetual factory of preachers. Men called to shepherd the flock and preach the word so that when my lungs are filled with worms, somebody else is preaching. And it just keeps on going until Christ returns. As Paul knew that the nature of God and the nature of man prove that the living preacher is not only commanded, but it's the most effective means of dispersing the living word to men. You heard it from me in the presence of many witnesses. Now get a bunch of witnesses together and give it to other men so that they can do the same. Now why is it that this is so effective? And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to go back and forth between the, the scriptural truths, but also showing you how wise this is of God to put this into play. Consider some of these benefits. We want unity in the church. Everybody should want that. We want to have everybody on the same page. We want spiritual growth. We want doctrinal instruction. We want practical application. We want growth in holiness. We all want that as a church Unified. We, we don't want to grow as a church and, and watch people fall by the wayside. We, we are hopefully praying that we're all growing together. So what's the best way to get everybody on the church, in the church on the same page, growing together, hearing the same instruction, and united in the practical application of it? Preaching. All in a congregation, says Gardner Spring, are virtually reading the same book 
when thus listening to the instructions of a single living preacher. So this gives, this gives you a great picture, okay? So how else could an entire congregation, be it large or small, read collectively, study anywhere from 5 to 25 commentaries and historical sources, do studies in the original languages, weed out all of the fluff, come to a united understanding of the distilled essence of a single text of Scripture all at the same time. You set aside a man who will do all that work and then give it to you. And it's like we're all reading the book together. We've distilled, we've got all the fluff out of the way, we put it all together, and we all read it together, and we're growing together. The providence of God has ordered the day-to-day life of the common saint so that not only do most Christians not have the resources to carry out that type of a study, but they don't have the time. God never expected every saint to do what He has also set aside men to do. That wouldn't make any sense to set apart the men if everybody could do it the same. It's one of the benefits of preaching. Now we might object and say, well, everybody might not hear the sermon the same way or they might not take away the same things. And so there you have another prayer point. Pray for a united congregational hearing of the Word of God. Pray that we would grow together, unified, maturing as a body ought to grow. If you have a baby and one of their legs is growing three times faster than the rest of the body, that's going to cause problems for that child. Now, I don't want that to sound like I'm saying, well, don't let anybody grow too quickly because that's going to hurt everybody. Those who are growing faster than the rest of us just always remember to feed back into the body. The body has to help the rest of the body grow. Unity is very important and preaching helps that. That's a benefit to the church that private study can't afford. But again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. So that's, it's incorporated into the institutional structure of the church, but it's also crucial for individual saints. And this is what I'm hoping to be the final nail in the coffin. Individual saints have to pray. So you have to believe as an individual that preaching is important for you. Why should you feel the pressure and responsibility of praying for the ministry of the Word? Isn't that what I do? Is it not my job to labor in the Word and doctrine so that nobody else has to labor? Is it not my job to give myself to prayer and to the ministry of the Word so that nobody else has to give themselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. Why should you feel any responsibility at all? Because it's a means of grace flowing from the nature of God, calculated to suit the weakness of men, continued in every generation since the fall, and because your salvation and the salvation of your children and the salvation of everyone around you who is not in your immediate family depends on the preaching of the Word of God. Now, when I say salvation, I mean both regeneration and sanctification because both of them are dependent on this means that God's given. Remember, regeneration is an act of God that comes stuffed inside the package of effectual calling. So when you open up effectual calling, there you see a little regeneration down in that same box. And the effectual call comes by means of word and spirit, and that word is the external 
outward preaching of the gospel by a living preacher. Regeneration comes through the preaching of the Word. We'll look at several texts. First, Romans 1 and verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now Paul had just said in Romans, I am eager to preach to you who are in Rome. We open up the letter to the Romans and we have what is the single uh, most doctrinally clear and packed explanation of the gospel in all of Scripture, the letter to the Romans. So he's, he's about to write to them the gospel that he preached. And yet he still says, man, I want to come preach to you. I'm eager to preach to you. And he's so eager that it's like he's, he, he just can't help but just start writing it. He writes it out and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, there's only one. I'm not ashamed of it, for it is the power. The gospel, the preached gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. All who will believe, under normative circumstances, it's going to take place through the preaching of the gospel. And there we see the salvific work of God is limited in its extent to all who believe. This is why Paul was so eager to preach. He knew it's not going to be in vain. If I could just get there and preach to you, I've seen it. I've preached, I've preached, I've preached, I've preached. I've seen the power of God. If I could just get there and preach. He wants to preach to them. Under the preaching of the gospel, men and women and boys and girls are called into the fellowship of God's Son. Another passage, 1 Peter 1 23 to 25, he says, You have been born again, so that's a past act he's describing, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Now when, Paul, or when Peter there references the Word of God, is he referencing their little personal-sized, imitation-leather-bound copy of the Scriptures? No. He says, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you, born again through the living and abiding Word of God, the good news, the gospel that was preached. Again, the normative method for the effectual call of God to come to dead sinners... Quickening them to life is through the preached gospel. After declaring in Romans 10 that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Paul begins to reason in, a, in one of the more famous texts again. I kind of like to imagine that he knows where he's going as he writes, but he wants to kind of play with them a little bit in their thinking. And so he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then he begins, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? I mean, everybody who calls will be saved. But if they don't believe in him, they're not going to call on him. To call out to Christ, you have to believe in him first. Believe that he is a Savior worthy of calling upon. So how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom or whom they have never heard? 
You can't believe in something you've never heard. You can't believe in, a, in the existence of an object that you've never seen and no one's ever described to you. I like to say a lot of times, imagine the color, a crayon, the color of which you've never seen before. And you, you, they don't make. You can't do that. You can only believe in something once your mind has conceived of it. And so he says, how are they to believe if they've never heard? They have to hear about him to believe, but they've they got to believe before they call. And then he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? What, what means? By what means could they hear of this Christ so that they might believe on this Christ and believing they might call upon Him without somebody preaching? Somebody has to preach. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Who's going who's to go preach if somebody doesn't send some preachers? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Paul says, so faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through or by hearing the preached word. The word of Christ. Christ speaking through the preacher, granting faith. Calvin says, this is a remarkable passage with regard to the efficacy of preaching, for he testifies that by it, faith is produced. That is, because the Spirit accompanies the preaching of the gospel. So I, I, I can lob you some softball questions now. Do you want to see people saved? Do you want to see your children saved? Then you better get them under the preaching of the gospel and train them to hear the preaching of the gospel. And listen, I was explaining to my kids, the difference between hearing and listening to the preaching. And then, once you've done all of that, pray for those who preach and for those who hear that the word would be effectual. Now, can anyone be saved simply by reading the scriptures? Of course. God is not bound or constrained by these means. But ought we to presume upon God's power when He has prescribed for us the means? No. I always think of the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading, and Philip says, do you understand? And he says, well, how can I unless somebody guides me? It was just understood. This, this requires a little deeper study than I have. And again, this is not a negation of the Spirit's anointing upon every believer or the priesthood of every believer. But we have to remember that the Spirit, when the Spirit teaches a person, He uses means. He's not smoke that just comes into the lungs. He is a person who uses means to teach. And the primary means, I'm arguing, is the preaching of the Word of God. So regeneration is dependent upon the preaching of the Word, but also sanctification. It's not just that initial work that's the fruit of preaching, but your continued spiritual growth relies heavily upon the regular week in and week out preaching of the Word of God. And this is, this is where it begins to just boggle us, especially if you've ever stood here and tried to do this, and hopefully we'll see next week. This, this, is, this is where it goes off into the providence and the sovereignty of God. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
The truth has to come, and there has to be a means of that truth coming. James 1.21, James speaking to those whom he refers to as beloved brothers. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. They're already brothers. He's considering them brothers, those already born again, and he encourages them, receive the word, because the receiving, the continual receiving, is the means that God uses to preserve your soul unto final salvation. There is the perseverance of the saints, but there's also the preservation of the saints. God using means to preserve His people. God preserves us as we persevere. The Word is able to save your souls. 2 Timothy 3.16 Remember the context here. This is a pastoral epistle. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Just before he says, Timothy, preach the Word, he, he, he leads up to that by saying, The Word has everything in it that you need to carry out the ministry in the church. Contained within the God-breathed Scriptures, the man of God, the pastor, has everything he needs to fulfill his ministry as shepherd. Leading the people from infancy to maturity, it's all there. So, whereas we might write, here's a, here's a list of books. Here's the, the, the books you should read to learn from. Paul just says the Scriptures. Timothy, just the Scriptures, everything's in there. All that you'll need is in the book. Open the book. You and I need to be taught truth. We don't come to it naturally. You and I need to be reproved and shown when we're in error. We need to be corrected, brought around to the truth. And you and I need to be trained. Now that you've seen the error, now that you've seen the, the, the proper way, now this is how you carry on in that proper way. We need that if we are to grow in Christ's likeness and everything that we need for all of those is found in the Scriptures. It's the job of those who preach the Word to use it to that end. Teach with it, reprove with it, correct with it, train with it. This is how we grow to maturity. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Shepherds and teachers equip the saints and the body is built and matured through the ministry of those saints having thus been equipped by the preaching of the shepherd teachers. Some more softball questions. Do you want to grow in holiness? Do you want others in the room to grow in holiness? Then devote yourself to sitting under preaching Pray for the preaching. Pray for the preachers. Pray for the hearers. Encourage one another to devote ourselves, one another, to the preaching. Engage afterwards, helping one another to retain the word that has gone forth. Hopefully you can see that the preached word is of vital importance. We need it. All of us need it comes out of the nature of God. We've seen the historical proof. In the New Testament, the pattern continued. Christ was a preacher. The apostles preached. The church is built as a preaching factory. 
as it were. If you're personally convinced of your need and you truly desire a spiritual work to be done in your heart and in the hearts of your children and those around you, then you should pray that the ministry would be effective. Should we not seek God's help in doing what only He can do through the very means that He has ordained to accomplish it? See, those are the types of prayers that we know God will answer and answer in the affirmative. God, do what you said you would do using the means you said you would do it with. God answers those prayers. I'll close with one more quote from Robert Hall. He says, It's not merely a natural. It is also an instituted means of good. And whatever God appoints... By special authority, He graciously engages to bless, provided it be attended to with right dispositions and from right motives. So we pray for God's blessing, we pray for the right disposition, we pray for the right motives, and we pray for those who preach, and we trust that God will bless this means. Let's pray.